This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Welcome, 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 welcome back to Fans on the Run. Surprisingly, the world's only Beatles podcast. You would, you would think there'd be a couple by now, uh, wouldn't you? The world's full of surprises in that way. I jest, I jest. Um, usually I, I start the show with a weird, uh, senile rambling monologue about my, uh, inner thoughts, but, but the world's kind of, uh, gone to shit right now. As of recording this, the election was, you know, kind of recently. No one's quite sure who the American president is yet. Um, so my brain's a little scattered, but then again, if you've listened to the show, you've kind of figured out my brain is always a little scattered. So, not much will be different in that regard. Again, on with the show. Um, we, we have a fantastic guest for you today. I say that a lot, but again, I mean it a lot. Um, he's a New York Times bestselling author, he's a music guru, and he's the co-host of fellow podcast The Beatles Naked. Please give a warm welcome to Richard Buskin. Richard, welcome to Fans on the Run. Hi, great to be here. Uh, so far, what are your impressions of the show based on the first 30 seconds? I'm really impressed. I, you know, no edits required. You just roll along. Yeah, well, y- you might find out later on that that might be a bit of a hindrance. But Yeah, but uh, first, impression, first impressions count, you know. Yeah, well, first thing I want to say to you is you're a, you're a veteran of the Beatles podcasting world, so I'd like to apologize for uh, helping to oversaturate the Beatle podcast market. Uh, you can never have too much Beatles. You sure about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure of it. You, I'm sure of it. Especially in Beatles. these tough times. You can't have too much Beatles, but you can maybe have too many Beatles podcasts. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah. you know, there'll be natural survival of the fittest. Yes, and we will find out within the next few months if I'm one of the fittest. You know, hey, it's, it's, it's like the presidential election. Exactly. I've managed to keep this show going for six, seven months. I know there's been a couple other podcasts that have like faltered off with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's hope I have it in me to keep this going. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop talking about myself. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm hanging in there. Well, I think that's that's the best we can hope for right now. Absolutely. And now I, I usually like to do this. Well, uh, okay. See, this is where one of the things uh, of me not editing the show uh, hurts because some of my sentences are kind of run on and they don't make sense because all of my shows start this way. I'm going to go right back to the beginning. How did you first discover the Beatles? How did I first discover them? Okay, so that was the summer of 1963. Okay. And in the UK, I was in London, I was four years old. And I was a music fan already. I was into Let's Twist Again, Chubby Checker. Ah, yes. Um, that was one of the first big ones. That was still a craze. One of his in, in... Uh, three different Twist-related songs. And that's it. Or at least and... three that I'm aware of. There was probably an entire album or two full. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so I was like, you know, I was a kid. At my, I had a brother's like about eight and a half years older than me, so he'd buy some records. And one of the records he brought home was the Beatles Hits EP. Okay. And and we also had the She Loves You single. And that summer, um, we actually, my family, we went away to Italy. 
and we went by car and plane and car and and um, my parents said the whole way there and all the way back I was singing She Loves You. Really? Yeah. And you yeah. were you were four. I was four and absolutely Beatle crazy because you know what Americans often don't realize is that the Beatles story did actually start before the Ed Sullivan show yeah. in February 64. And so they were huge, absolutely I'll, huge. I'll admit, I, I always uh, get a little excited when uh, I have guests on and their story, you know, doesn't always start with, you know, it was January of 1964. Right. I, right. I, I heard them on Murray the K and, you know. Yeah. No, so in, in my case, we, so I was listening to She Loves You at Home <laughs> and also even, you know, tracks like I'll Get You and yeah. um, Thank You Girl because we had the Beatles hit CP and then, and then they were all over the TV. I do remember my dad getting me out of bed late at night, what seemed late at night and said the Beatles are on TV. And so I'm, I can only guess that that was either Sunday night at the London Palladium in October of 63 yeah. or the Royal Command performance um, the following month. But okay. it was one of those. It I also remember like ready, steady, go or, Top, yeah, top or something. yeah, but I but, but I don't have direct recall in '63 of watching Ready Steady Go. What I do remember from '63 at four years old is my brother saying to me, on the watching the TV, that's the Beatles when they started out, and it was footage of them at the cavern singing some other guy. And now, you know, through my good friend Mark Lewison's research, we know when that was first broadcast in the London area, and it was indeed in the summer or fall of '63. So, so that's those are my very, very first memories of the Beatles, and also that same year, um, having some Beatle wallpaper up on the wall. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, Beatle and wallpaper. a Beatle mug, a Beatle mug that my mum bought me. Oh wow! Um, so, yeah, so, so, I, so you, you know, were serious? Absolutely, I was. Oh yeah, and even had a Beatle plastic toy guitar, so I could practice my Lennon stunts. Now, now the the real question is: Do you still have that plastic beetle guitar? I don't, unfortunately, nor the wallpaper, but I have the mug still. Okay, it's, well, silver linings. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. But, if, you, but, if you still had that toy guitar, it'd be worth a small fortune. Oh yeah, it, well, especially if it was in its box, which I'm sure disappeared the day I got it. Oh yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> now you're really making me envious of things that you don't even own anymore. <laughs> yeah make myself envious so you were a fan pretty much uh in terms of the british public from almost day yeah. one pretty much yes pretty much when it hit the nation you know yeah. which everyone sort of says it was building all the way through 63 the beetle i mean there were reports yeah. of beetlemania from early in 63 at the concerts but really october 63 when they were on Sunday night at the London Palladium, that's when it brought it into everyone's homes. And that's when I would have been caught up in it. Because even if you just look at the charts, like they, they had been kind of gaining more and more of a footing throughout the year. You know, please, yes. please me, depending on where you look at number two and from me to you hit number one. And then she loves you became like the best selling single oh, of all time. Massive. in the UK. Yeah. That, that was the massive one, right? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Refrain. Um, you know, and the, and the parents knew about the Beatles. That was the other thing. You know, my parents knew that their whole generation knew. It was like everyone was talking about it, and there was hardly a day when they weren't in the newspapers. 
Well, actually, uh, funny enough, you should bring up the newspapers because I, I went down a rabbit hole the other day of looking at the history of the Beatles in newspaper cartoons. And there were some from the like British 63 or 4 election yes. with uh, Harold Wilson. And uh, who, who's the other guy? Alec, Alec Douglas Hume was the prime minister in 63 in Britain. Harold Macmillan. And then he yes. was replaced by Alec Douglas Hume. And there's, um, I know there's a newspaper cartoon where I think it's Alec Douglas Hume, either him or Harold Macmillan, are saying to maybe President Kennedy that the Beatles are our secret weapon. I think that was one of the ones I saw. Yeah. Which it, it's just weird little things about like that mm. that I I just I I find irresistible. You know, falling down those rabbit holes. Yeah, and, and you know all these, like even the daft stories from the time, right? Because it's like the press are looking for stuff, and so, you know, there was a report of some vicar somewhere in the UK saying that he told his congregation to sing "Oh Come All Ye Faithful," yeah, 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 for Christmas. <laughs> you know, what I mean, you know, ridiculous non-stories, but it was like anything that the press could grab onto, they did. Well, again, can you blame them? Like, look at the Kardashians now. Well, yeah, exactly. I think there was more to back up the Beatles than the Kardashians. Well, to us, maybe. Uh, you know. And Come to on. other civilized people. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So as the 60s go on and on, actually, do you have any other memories from that kind of early, pre, yes. let's yes. say, help era? Oh, earlier than that, yeah. I, um, so direct memories, okay, one very specific one is the day they came back from the States after the first U.S. visit mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in February of 63. Uh, uh, sorry, say again. In February of 64. Um, and they were on Big Night Out, which was mm -hmm. a sort of variety show hosted by the comedian brothers Mike and Bernie Winters. I, I, I love the footage from that. Uh, it's fantastic, you know, because that was the era when they were happy to be in these TV comedy skits and things like oh, that. 60, the, 63 the promo and 64. where they're busting through the wall. That's uh, the show. That's it, it, the show. It's a damn shame that you can't really find the footage in high definition or even like standard definition. It's all. Yeah, I, I've actually, I've actually got a good copy, but that's thanks to my co-host on the Beatles Naked, Eric Taros. Um, he supplied me with a fantastic copy of it. Oh, fuck. The only decent footage I've seen was uh, the bits that were in Anthology. of I yeah. think it was like, Please, Mr. Postman. Right, right. But the bit that I remembered for years, so that was February of 64. And it wasn't until the 80s that I saw it again. And I'd been saying for years that I remembered the other comedy skit in there, which was where they're supposed to be arriving back at oh, yeah. London Airport and they've got their suitcases, okay? And Mike and Bernie Winters are the customs officials and open your cases. And I remember my father said, as we're watching it, he said, there's going to be money in there. <laughs> and sure enough, they open the cases and all this cash falls out. The point of that being that that was the perspective. You won't hear that now. You know, now it's long been established that British rock stars make it big across the Atlantic. At that time, they didn't. And so it was, A, the shock value, first of all. My God, they've actually cracked the U.S. market. And then the next thing was, coming from Britain, you know, a smaller country, was, my God, they must be making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. 
that was the big thing you know people were sort of saying so that was my dad's perspective it's like yeah you know all that money they're making so that was the reason for that so that was um a direct memory okay that show um another one is i didn't see hard day's night in the cinema but i did see help in the cinema and i saw it at the london pavilion where it had been premiered in, really in the, yeah um and it was summer vacation you know off school and it was during the week and my mother took me to a matinee performance, okay? And so we went to see the film and it was fantastic seeing them up on the big screen in colour. Never seen them in colour because we had black and white TV. Yeah. So seeing them in colour, moving for the first time and singing and sat through the whole film and then she said to me, because it was like, you know, early afternoon, do you want to watch the next performance? Yeah. So we sat through two back-to-back -back performances of Help. Oh, your mum's awesome. She was, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, those are two early memories, 64, 65. And see, this will be the first of many uh, divergence and tangents. Uh, so, child of the 60s in, in England, uh, yeah. who were some of your other favorite groups throughout the, throughout the decade that maybe some of us, you know, Americans, Canadians may not remember that well? Well, uh, well I, mean, I wouldn't uh, remember because yeah. I wasn't alive. <laughs> in terms of solo artists and groups um just off the top of my head dusty springfield always loved dusty springfield yes same year 63 as she loves you you know um i only want to be with you as one of my all-time favorite singles so love them loved uh the ronettes be my baby you and brian uh, wilson oh yeah the oh the beach boys absolutely uh, in fact an early record that i had that I had an aunt go and get me was some Beach Boys EP, I think it was, and it had I Get Around on there. See, um, I, I discovered that song long before I discovered the Beach Boys, and when I was like, you know, five or six years old, all yeah. I would want to listen to is I Get Around. Right, right. So, okay, so there's that. My dad, I should tell you, was um, a partner in a, a menswear manufacturing company, and they manufactured high fashion. So their stuff was in, in the shops on, you know, in Carnaby Street, um, the King's Road, mm -hmm. all of that stuff. In fact, they were also knocking out and sort of knock off Beatle collarless jackets, not Pierre Cardin, obviously, but they were doing them. So, yeah. um, and one of the bands that they actually made the suits for were the Trogs. Really? Uh, yeah. And in fact, the, the famous little film of them doing Wild Thing, they're in these white, I think it's black and white footage, but there are colour stills of them in these suits. They were white with like rainbow stripes, um, um, parallel, um, vertical rainbow stripes. And uh, I just remember, this was like, I was about seven years old in 66, they were going to be on top of the Pops, you know, big BBC TV show there. Yeah. And uh, the whole school knew, my dad's suits are on TV tonight. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was the trogs. And we used to go down Carnaby Street at night sometimes and look in the store windows and you say, oh, we made that, we made that. You know, it was an exciting time. So the trogs, that was another So your, your dad played a part in a way of, in uh, Swinging London. You know, he, he did was... absolutely capitalizing on it. Really, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as any smart, you know, menswear uh, specialist would. You yes, know, you have all these, you know, kids who are suddenly interested in looking dapper. You have yep. the whole mod thing going. Yep, absolutely. So dedicated follower fashion, right? Yeah, exactly. The Kinks love that. Absolutely love the Kinks. Again, um, the Kinks over here. You, you, you hear three songs right but 
the Kinks did so much more good stuff. They did, yeah, they really did. You know, so you know, you really got me. Of course, that's one of the ones that's famous here. Waterloo Sunset later on in the sixties, fantastic song <laughs> from one of my no. favorite albums, as something else by the Kinks. Yes, fantastic album. I and agree. actually, for once, I, I feel like I'm legally obligated to mention this band at one at least once per episode, uh, mm. w- when willing. Uh, just for my own sheer amusement, uh, Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch. Yes, and my my the song of theirs that I absolutely loved in the late sixties was the Legend of Xanadu. Da, 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 with the, with, that's with right the with the whip sounds exactly yeah. yes. So so I love that. I love the move. Oh, Blackberry Way. Well, actually, I I don't pick up CDs that much anymore, uh, but just the other day I picked up a three CD deluxe set of the moves first album right with you know uh flowers in the rain and fire brigade yes walk upon the water and of course they were the earlier iteration of what would eventually become elo um because jeff lynn sort of joined a later version of the move he left the idle race and and teamed up with roy wood yes and then roy wood basically left and you know he fucked off and went to do wizard did Wizard see my baby jive? Yeah. Which, so, one of the hmm. most uh, whiplash inducing discoveries is learning how big of a, a hit I, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day was over yes. there. And the Huge. fact that I had never heard it until this May. It, wow. I, it had never been played, you know, on the radio here. Mm. So, I- so other, other bands that I loved Manfred Mann. Okay, that was one right through the 60s, 543 to 1. Well, that was the theme to Ready, Steady, Go. Absolutely, yeah. Pretty Flamingo, you know, and uh, Quinn the Eskimo, all all the way through the 60s. Love their stuff. So um, who else did I like? The Stones. Uh, I I remember absolutely loving um, Paint It Black in 66. Love that song. Well, how Um, can you not? Yeah, right? Yeah. of course, satisfaction because they were big as well. You know, on the TV, you'd see that. You know, every all the parents knew that if they knew two bands, it was the Beatles and the Stones. Of course, yeah, the Beatles and the Stones. And if, yeah. if your parents were, you know, hip and in tune enough, maybe they'd know the Dave Clark Five. Yeah, people had heard, especially coming from London, right? The Tottenham sound. So, yes, Dave Clark Five, another band as well. Um, Which is actually yeah, one I mean, of the few instances that I can think of where a band. Uh, may have had more success over here than mm. they did in their home country. Often the case, right? That's yeah. often, I mean, for instance, in the States, you know, Chad and Jeremy were big. Never even heard of them in the UK, and they were British. Really? Yeah, I never heard of them. But, you know, for people who are listening and thinking, God, what, he's like four years old, five, you know, seven, and he's talking of all these artists. Yeah, because... It was a big part of the culture. You know, pop culture just exploded in the 60s. And now it was accepted more by the parents, you know, whereas in the 50s that had been a problem. And it was all over the radio. So we'd be in the car, we'd listen to the radio, you'd hear these songs in heavy rotation. So that's... And then on TV as well, you know, and we only had two channels in our house. There were only three channels anyway, and we had two. Um, But we still got our pop shows in and stuff, you know. So we were exposed to that all the time. Actually, this may be the most exciting thing, because now I'm actually talking to someone who might have experienced this. What are your memories of the pirate radio stations? Because oh, that's, yeah. that's one of my favorite areas of 
study in terms of music pop culture british pirate yeah. stations yes well you see we okay so you had sort of bbc you know radio yeah. but bbc light was, entertainment exactly yes the voice of the bbc and you know we had very limited amount of pop it was just sort of limited um how much they played in the first half of the 60s so i remember listening to radio luxembourg um which a lot of people you'll hear teenagers you know even the beatles listened i think back in the 1950s late at night and i'm not sure why but there was always this signal that when you listen as they were talking there'd be this beep 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 all the way through it was some something they did i'm not sure why but i just remember listening to radio luxembourg and then bbc started broadening out eventually they brought in radio one but we had as you said the pirate radio so well, that's what we'd full be listening circle, to first song played on radio one the aforementioned flowers in the rain yes that's right yeah it's all full and circle so, it is so we would be again often in the car listening to the radio and yeah, Radio London and Radio Caroline were the two that I remember. Well, And we listened to them all the time. Radio London got a, a bit of a second life everywhere yes. with the, the Who sell out. Because right. before I, I knew what any of those were, I, I knew, you know, the wonderful Radio London. London. Yeah, Whoopee. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, by the way, as we're working our way through, another... A um, couple of really strong, well, actually, a few strong Beatle memories I'll okay. give you as well. I, 60, I won't stop you. <laughs> 1966, um, we were in the UK in the summer. Um, normally, we went over, like into Europe for summer vacation. That year, we stayed in the UK, rained for a couple of weeks, of course. And uh, while we were in do. this hotel, <laughs> while we were in this hotel in Cornwall, um, they had like, I don't know what you call it, the big ballroom in the hotel. And the teenagers, they had a record player and then they'd play records. And so that was the first time I heard Yellow Submarine Eleanor Rigby sing, um, single, because that, that was that summer of 66. And were kids and dancing so, to Eleanor Rigby? I don't know about dancing to it, but most likely slow dancing. I'd be making it up so I can remember. I don't specifically yeah. remember them dancing or not, but I just remember them playing it in the ballroom all the time. So that's when I first... You would have been first... seven or so. I would have been seven, exactly, yeah. And into Batman, and well, England won the World Cup in football, soccer tournament. Um, and then the following year, we were at school one day, and it was that everyone go into the assembly hall, you'll sit cross-legged on the floor, there's going to be some sort of entertainment. Yeah. And there was some hippie-ish guy telling some story. I can't remember what the story was. I think he was alluding to himself as a nowhere man or something. And then they started to play All You Need Is Love over the PA. And the fourth formers, who were the 11-year-olds, they were the big kids in in the uh, in that school. Mm -hmm. They came. Some of them came out on the stage. I just remember them with these baskets with flowers, and they were throwing flowers out to the audience what of the kids. Hell? Yeah, to All You Need Is Love, right? A very different era. You know, it's uh, it was cool. That was really cool. I, I clearly remember that. And well, another one is that, that sounds really yeah. progressive of your school for yes. know, embracing the whole flower power summer of love thing. Yeah, they must have thought it was a good message. But it is funny, right? Because if we'd been teenagers, you know, high school or something or middle school, you'd understand it. But this was elementary school kids. Mm -hmm. So it was, as you say, pretty forward thinking. And also this hippie-ish guy. I don't know that any of us followed what he was talking about. 
But um, yeah, strong memory of that. And another really great memory was um, 68, Beatles on the David Frost Show. Uh, yes. Hey Jude. And that was the a Sunday night. The greatest tea room orchestra. In the world, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, Sunday night, watching it again with my parents. And I just, of course, when you got to the na 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 refrain, even the you know the middle ages the oldest like that so i remember my dad saying god it's so catchy <laughs> um so yeah you know i mean all the way through the 60s it was the beatles and and we were so spoilt then you know you look at the charts and that's why i'm saying that's why i remember all this stuff it's because the charts were just full of fantastic well for me anyway fantastic material um well, you know especially whichever... you brits you were really spoiled like 1968, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake spent six weeks at number one. Yes. That is the epitome of spoiled music wise. Another great um, song from that year that I absolutely loved was The Love Affair, their cover version of Everlasting Love, which for me to this day is still the best version of that song. Anyone who hasn't heard that version, take a listen. It's fantastic. I'll, I'll have to do that after the show, because yeah. I've heard of The Love Affair, I think. Yes. I, I get a lot of those bands confused, you know, The Herd, all, right. all those ones on Immediate that yeah. were just kind of there. What 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 the hell's the name of that band that did If Paradise is Half as Nice? A Eamon Corner. Eamon Corner. Yeah. For some reason, that was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, so. and um, also, I'm trying to think the name of the band, but the song was called Jezamine. Like, they were one one hit wonders. It was a chart topper, though, in the UK. Um, yeah, the, the Turtles, okay? The Turtles. Yeah, you know, we got them um, happy together. And, uh, oh, yeah. As you say, yeah, a lot of British acts that didn't cross over and, and so on. Well, a lot of those British bands, this is where I'll take a bit of smug national pride, uh, they didn't crack the U.S., but quite a few of them cracked Canada for some inexplicable reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the whole. Well, you say that, but I mean, it's here. like, yeah, you know, it's like, well, the Beatles were always big in Sweden. Of course, they visited there in 63, so that really helped. But they went there for a reason, because they were big there. I mean, yeah. certain Australia, look how massive the Beatles were when they visited there in 64, the biggest crowds for them ever. Exactly. Yeah, and Australia didn't even get the full Beatles. That's they right. They got I know. three of them. Well, eventually they got four. Yeah. Parts of them got four. Yeah. Well, I, I was reading a, a book recently, and I saw a photo that I'd never seen before of all five. I'd I'd never seen a photo yes. of Ringo yeah. and Jimmy Nickel and Jimmy. The, yes, in the same yeah. thing, and I'm like, how have I not seen that until now? And you've seen the photo as well of, of Jimmy back at the airport, all on his own, waiting oh, yeah. to leave. That yeah, that's sad. the with his little beetle bag. Yes. His... Yeah. Oh. So now this is where it gets sad. Do you have any what what's your memory of the Beatles breaking up? The the news report. Um so yeah, a few things from the late later part of the sixties. So one thing I remember before we get to that, like in sixty seven, <laughs> when Paul um, admitted on TV that he'd taken LSD. I don't remember specifically watching that. What I do remember was my dad coming home from work and I'd seen something about this on the news. 
And in those days, and I can only, I'm just assuming this, but I do remember that in those days, the sort of cliched thing about LSD that people would say is, oh, it's the drug that makes people think they can fly, which is not quite accurate. But uh, anyway, that's what, you know, so I'm assuming that's what I heard because I remember saying to him, the Beatles were arrested, which they weren't, of course, the Beatles were arrested for drugs on a plane. And I think it was because I'd heard that it was a, it makes you think you can fly. I must have got it all conflated in my head, you know, and um, said that. So I, I remember that. Um, and then in terms of the news again, yeah, 1970, April 70, I do remember watching the news where they were talking to the girls outside Apple, the Apple Scruffs, mm -hmm. and, you know, asking them and, you know, some of them are crying and stuff like that. I, I remember that very clearly. Does also, the, the other thing I should say is that as they were going through the 60s, and remember, I was a little kid at the time, mm -hmm. um, they started to look a bit, especially John, you know, with the granny glasses. He, he and started the, to look with uh, a little weird with the walrus mustache and... That sort of stuff, yeah. So, you know, but that said, as you said, walrus, goo goo gajoob, how fun is that for an eight-year-old, you know? Har, har, um, har. Yeah, right? So I was always engaged by them, but I did, I think I was sort of going along with what my parents most likely would have been saying, like, yo, you know, they're looking a bit strange now, you know, they've gone a bit weird or it's gone to their heads. Well, isn't that what the Queen said? There what was, did the Queen say? There is some story I think I read of Sir Joseph Lockwood yeah. having, like, dinner with the Queen and her saying, like, the Beatles have gone awful funny, haven't they? Oh, really? I didn't know that. I don't yeah. remember that. Yeah, okay. It's like, well, <laughs> you have the stamp of approval right there from yeah. Her Majesty. There you go, yeah. Well, then it got thrown back in her face. Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you know if that footage of uh, the Apple Scruffs reacting still exists? Because that's, y yes, that's yes. also the if shame you... about Britain in particular. A lot of your big Beatle TV milestones got wiped. They did, well... Although, as Eric Tarras, my co-host on Beatles Naked, will tell you that some of them didn't get completely wiped. You know, some, yeah. yeah, got wiped. And others, it's been said that they've been wiped, but there are collectors who've got them. Really? So, yeah. So, for instance, the final appearance on Top of the Pops in 66 doing Paperback Writer, mm -hmm. um, that now little bits of it have started emerging on the Internet. You know, oh, um, I saw a news report about that. Where right. they made a big deal of it being restored, and even mm. though it, it still looks, you know, like garbage, at least you, you have a record of it existing now. Right. Now, Eric has told me that a mint copy of that exists because he, he knows of, you know, he won't divulge the details, yeah. but I think it's a collector in Japan has it. Um, that so, that, which is that kind of thing really always annoying. makes me really irritated. Yeah, it what, pisses what? me off too, right? You know, it's like share it with the world. It's ridiculous. Yeah, because yeah. you're you're just holding back stuff that ever where a lot of people would like to see. That's that's just right. greed. Yeah, I agree. But Imagine getting back just... to what you were saying about the um, the the apple scruffs, you know, and other people being you know vox poppers, I'd say asking <laughs> people in the street um, what they think about the Beatles splitting up. I'm pretty. That's on YouTube. You okay. can look that up. Yeah. But yeah, well, I I wonder if any of those other ones. Uh, I I, I saw like a, a really bad handheld uh, camcorder 
wouldn't have been a camcorder, uh, of the Beatles on top of the Pops doing Can't Buy Me Love. And now it yeah. now you have me paranoid thinking that they all exist in mint condition and that some random collector in Japan is sitting on them all. Right, well... Not physically, yeah, I mean, he's not probably using them as no, a chair. No, I, I don't think so. I don't think they all exist, but... It is amazing how, as Eric says, just keep waiting. They keep emerging, you know, things do. But the, the, the sad losses are the ones from, you know, late 62 and the bulk of 63. Many of those UK appearances appear to have gone. We've got sound for some of them. We've got screen grabs, right, where people film, you know, took a photo of the screen. There's that um, one, I've forgotten which show it was, but maybe People and Places, something like that. Where I think so where um, John is sitting down without a guitar, as if the rest of them are almost like his backing band. He's surrounded by the other three and, you know, and performing like that. God, it'd be great to see that. Now, now I'm thinking anything Beatles that's so-called quote unquote lost is probably out there. Yeah, a lot of it is. A lot of it is. Not all of it, I don't think, but a lot of it is. Yeah. Do you, do you reckon a copy of Carnival of Light has somehow filtered into some collector's hands? That I don't know. I mean, again, you know, Mark Lewison's heard it and he yeah. did say to me, don't worry that if it hasn't been released because it's a load of rubbish. That's well, actually, that's one of my prized possessions. I have a copy of right. uh, Mark's uh, Complete Beatles recording sessions that I got yeah. him to write a personalized footnote on that page that right. says, like, because... It was it was the fest for Beatle fans. I had already yeah. gotten him to sign the first page, you know, as you do. But I had gone to all his panels, and he started to recognize me. And so on the last day, I'm like, you know what, this might be fun. So I, I went back to the room where he was doing the autographs, and I, I plopped the book down on the page, and I said just, Mark, can you please write whatever you want? <laughs> like, whatever you want on this page. Yeah. So very dangerous thing to ask yeah. okay i'll do that and so he wrote if i remember correctly carnival of light will we ever hear it question mark i don't know hopefully but maybe then people won't pay it any attention right exactly yeah i mean the legend i think is uh bigger than the reality in that one in, in the case of that particular track I, I don't think until the beatles actually release it themselves that the legend will ever die down because right. it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a Beatles song that has been acknowledged by the Beatles publicly mm. that, you know, they kind of dangle, dangle it in front of us every few years or so. Like Paul says in some interview, like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get that released, you know. God, that's good, you know. I, I would have thought that was him right now. I know. Well, I have a surprise for you. He's on the other line. No. Wow. <laughs> I know. Fans on the run, the show that makes things happen. Exactly. Oh, God, fuck. <laughs> Anyways, so how did, how did you begin to, uh, you know, transition from, you know, just a Beatle fan to, you know, making the Beatles somewhat, uh, uh, would, would you say a profession? Oh, I see. I wouldn't say it's a profession, but yeah. it's certainly, I mean, you know, eventually. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, through the 70s, I mean, in. 77 i think it was no 76 december of 76 was my first beatles convention in the uk which was a monumental bust at alexandra palace it was like the place was empty it was a disaster but really? the following year we had um the first one in liverpool okay 
October weekend over the um, birthday weekend for John Lennon. And uh, that was just magnificent for us. You know, at that age, I was 18. That's when I first met Mark. And uh, the, uh, you know, I remember we had a magical history tour, as they called it, and uh, various buses going around Liverpool. Beryl Williams, Alan's wife, was our tour guide, but I got to speak with Alan and Bob Wooler and Lord Wood. Um, no, Lord Woodbine was the one at the one in London before that. But um, it was just great, you know, to see these people, hear them, talk with them, see the sights. Those days, Matthew Street was just rubble, basically, where the cavern mm -hmm. had been. You know, it was like, I think, well, like literally. a car park. Yeah, literally. Oh, yeah. I've got a photo I took of Alan Williams standing there. Um, and so that was, like, really exciting, and that fired me up. And we had the reprints of the Beatles monthly as well. Yeah. And Before so, they started putting out new ones. Right, which, right, Which is yeah. really frustrating that they did put out new ones, because every mm. time I'm on eBay looking for copies of the Beatles Monthly, it's like, oh yeah, here's a job lot of 30 of them. They're all from after 1984, though. Right, oh, well, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm not paying $200 for that. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I, I actually had all of them because someone gifted them. It was someone, her daughter had, had um, them in the 60s and oh. didn't want them anymore and offloaded them on me, which was like, yay, okay. Do you still so, have them? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so... You know, so basically that kept me engaged through the 70s. Of course, there were solo Beatles albums. That's when I began to veer much more towards John Lennon. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Wings. Or stuff. You know, some of their songs, okay, but much more Lennon. And oh, yeah. well, by the sort of... McCartney was, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb and John was How Do You Sleep at Night. Exactly, right? So, I mean, I wasn't listening to Plastic Ono Band in 1970 or even Imagine in 71, but when I hit my mid-teens, so around sort of 75, well, I think 74 I got Walls and Bridges, yeah. and I loved that. And I had Band on the Run, and I had, uh, I think, Living in the Material World and things like that. But then I started kind of going back into the John catalogue, and that's when I began to listen more to Plastic Ono Band and Imagine, and identifying with a lot of those sort of tracks you know just when did you get stuff. your first copy of two virgins <laughs> i got my first copy of two virgins a lot later on i didn't i don't think i don't even know if i knew about it as a nine-year-old i'm sure most likely my mother kept me away from it you know I didn't i don't even recall that to be honest i don't recall per you know i'd be making it up if i said i recall the whole fallout about them appearing naked i don't recall that i do recall them being on tv and everyone talking about them and the beddings, you know, that I recall. Yeah. But Two Virgins I discovered later on. Well, if only I had the uh, foresight to realize that I would, you know, have you on the show. Because uh, for each episode I, I do up, a, as the audience can see, I, I do up a graphic of whoever my guest is inserted oh. into a Beatles album sleeve or single sleeve what oh have you. great yeah yeah i know where you're Un going with unfortunately this. i had already used up two virgins on a past guest before i even put two and two together it's like <laughs> shit he hosts a show called the beatles naked that would have been perfect <laughs> so un unfortunately you you have the help british album it you, 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 
you made I off. I think I'll take that. Yeah. I think I'll take that over two virgins. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you made off a lot better than some of my other guests because <laughs> when you start to do so many episodes, you start to run out of sleeves. Yes, I yeah. can imagine. Yeah. So yeah. I, I had a bit of a an existential crisis about that a couple days ago. It's like, God, what am I going to do? And so I went through like a worldwide discography, pulled album and single sleeves from all around the world, and now I feel like I have a stockpile for the apocalypse of Perfect. different sleeves to use. We can all sigh, a, you know, a breath. Uh, uh, no, got that the wrong way around. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. I was yes, say. fans on the run can continue. Or all sigh a breath of relief. Exactly. But anyway, to get to get back to your question, so that was like you know through the seventies and then into the eighties. I began, so now I'm like, you know, was it 1980? In fact, before John died, um, I did my first interview. I Victor Spinetti was at one of the conventions. Oh, yes. And so I just went up to him and said, could I interview you, you know, for one of the fanzines? It was a small fanzine called Come Together. Okay. Um, some, gu some guy was sort of doing it out of his living room. And um, I... In case you're listening out there, some guy... Richard well, it was actually a guy, called, a guy called Carl Dunkley. I remember that. And um, we went to Victor Spinetti's place in London, in, in the centre of London. And um, he entertained us for a day, basically. He was fantastic and uh, interviewed him for this fanzine. And, you know, he was telling us all about the best footage in Help ended up on the cutting room floor because they were all high on pot. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were just like, it was just great. Being, you know, the great Victor Spinetti, he was terrific. So, well, well, if any footage still exists out there and it's being sat on by some Japanese collector, I, I would want it to be that. You know, oh my God, the yeah. Beatles stoned off their fucking minds. Yeah, unfortunately, in those two days, miles. unfortunately in those days, the offcuts, you know, the outtakes were destroyed after a year. So that was usually that was studio policy in the U.S. and the U.K. Damn you, but, um, United Artists! I know. So, although look at the um, if you look at the trailer for Help, there are a few of the outtakes in there. The bit of George in that big bubble that oh, doesn't end up in the film. Well, we could both take solace in the fact that United Artists doesn't really exist anymore. Right. So, in a in a karmic way, they got what they deserve. There you go. So I um, started now dabbling in writing. I, I was actually in computers at the time, um, but uh, I started writing for some fanzines and things. I did also write for Beatles Monthly, um, ha had some articles there. And uh, eventually, you know, I m moved into journalism. I actually became a journalist. And so that's when I could start indulging my interest, not just in music, but in Beatles. So... You know, that's when I was in 87, I interviewed George Martin um, when they were putting out the first few Beatles albums on CD. And wow. so I interviewed him in person, which was great, you know. And you got and, to talk to him about the, the CD releases? Yes, I did at the time. In fact, if you go to YouTube, uh, I did post the interview on there. It's under, um, if you just put George yeah. Martin and put Rich Buskin as one word, R-I-C-H-B-U-S-K-I-N, You'll go to my channel most likely. And, well, uh, listeners, right posted. now, pause this episode, go go watch that, and then come back. All right, now, right, you're, now back. you're back. What, now you're back. Now you're now back. You're what do you think of it? I, I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> so, um, 
so uh, yeah, so that's when I began to indulge, you know, and, and started actually interviewing a lot of artists and producers and recording engineers and so on. And so it, it basically went from there. I take it in this era was where the New York Times bestselling author uh, moniker came into play. Well, that first came into play in actually later on. Um, that was in ninety seven or ninety eight, um, when Princess Diana died, and ah. I'd. I'd been commissioned to do, I'm not a royal royalist or anything like that, but uh, I'd been commissioned by an American publisher five years earlier to do a quickie paperback on her, simply because I was an author who, and a writer who was British. Yes. So I was like, who can we get to write, you know? So, so I did this and then when she died, we did an updated version and that hit the New York Times bestsellers. Well, that that's a feather in your cap. Yeah, being able nice. to have some schmuck teenager introduce you as New York Times bestselling artist or author. Hey, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. So, yeah. So, um, but, you know, I was doing magazine writing through the second half of the eight. I mean, I went full time as a journalist in December of 84 and got an immediate break when a good friend of mine called David Stark, who, He's got some incredible stories to tell, actually. Um, he's got a book coming out soon. Oh. And uh, he he's older than me, and David. And um, so back in the 60s, he actually, you know, he was outside. He's in photos with John and Yoko um, Mar outside Marylebone Court when they were busted for pot. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then he was actually sitting directly behind the Beatles at the Yellow Submarine premiere. He gate crashed and ended up getting a seat directly behind them and there's footage of him there at the premiere um and so how, uh, how does one gate crash a beatles movie premiere oh well in david's case you go along with your school chum you're 15 years old you see a door open at this um at the side of the london pavilion building in piccadilly circus so you look in there and you see an elevator so you get in the elevator and you go up to the roof and then you're standing on the roof and there are some other people up there and you're all looking down and you see cr the crowds gathering. And then as it's getting close to showtime, you drop back down into the theatre and you get stopped by someone who asks, you know, who are you and what are you doing here? And you bullshit them and say that you're a friend of Clive Epstein, and oh. who, you know, who he met once in a hotel a few years earlier. And, uh, and and then asks um, um, and sees Dick James passing by and says to him, who'd never met him before, and says, Dick, um, have you seen Clive? And Dick James says, no, he's around here somewhere. And the usher who's like there sort of says, OK, well, obviously, you know what you're doing here. You can stay. I mean, those days, that's what security was like, non-existent. And so um, then the lights go down and he sees two um, two seats behind directly behind i think paul mccartney and uh, goes there and it's keith richards sitting there and he says um these seats were for mick and marianne but they're they're not here so you can sit here so he sat there so not only did he gate crash the yellow submarine premiere he he stole mick jagger and marianne faithful's seats with his friend yes and then and then he's sort of saying to paul during the film things like oh i love that new song you know, and, and so he told told this story, okay, and you sort of think, oh, it's a great story, but, you know, any proof of it? Well, I interviewed him, because there's a photo, in fact, there's a photo that's widely published of Paul at the premiere, and you can see that behind him there's an empty seat, and Dave always said, that was my seat. Well, 
fast forward to 1988, so it was like the 20th anniversary, and I interviewed him for the Beatles Monthly magazine. <laughs> and when it was published, he phones me up and says, turn to page whatever, you know. And I said, yeah, and I turned to that page, and God, there's a photo that they'd put in of Dave <laughs> standing behind George in the lobby. And then fast forward again to, um, I think it was the Martin Scorsese, George, you know, living in the material world documentary. And you see people arriving, the Beatles arriving at the premiere and everything. And damn me, we're sitting there. And here's Dave coming across the front of George Harrison in the film. Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, that's that's Dave, right? I can't remember what we were talking about before. but It, uh... it doesn't matter. That is that is one of the best stories I think I've ever heard. Oh, Dave's full of them. I'm telling you, he's got great stories. Absolutely, that's why he's doing a book. We're well, going to have him on the show, by the way, as well. Well, there you go. Yeah. I I, I assume, I, I urge all of my listeners, go listen to that. It is probably worth your time more than this show and check out and check out dave stark's new book as well i think it's called something like it's all too much i think that's the title i wrote the foreword one of the forewords for it but um he's a fascinating guy incredible stories i mean he's just the ultimate i call him like the beatles zelig you know he shows up <laughs> everything and uh he um I, I mean and that's just the tip of the iceberg because he's in he's got a, a a magazine that he self-publishes for music publishers and composers, which is very, very successful, <laughs> called Songlink International. Okay, I, and, I've heard of that. Yeah, so Dave knows anyone who's everyone, really. And uh, he sits on panels, you know, judging songs and stuff like that. And one time he went to Cuba. I, I think I mentioned this in the foreword. And uh, he went to Cuba. So as a joke, I said to him when he got back, I said, so where's the photo of you with Fidel Castro? Don't you think he produced it? It was like, damn. Oh. <laughs> that'd be like someone going to the uk and saying where's a photo with the queen you know it's not going to happen but it was like he was judging some music contest fidel castro was there because it was you know cuba yeah and uh and of course he's got a photo with fidel castro that that's just wild wow yes yes well now this is where it gets really personal what do the beatles mean to you personally They've been with me most of my life, right? So from the age of four, okay, I'm, I'm 61 now. And uh, it, it's a lifetime of it. Um, you know, the, I think there was a period in the early 70s when they split where I went a bit sort of cool on them. I was into other stuff. And then it all revived again, you know, in 73 when I was 14 because Beatle reunion rumors on the back of the Ringo album <laughs> with the others, you know, guesting on there. And so... Uh, I remember being at school and, you know, I was like behind the times, you know, I'm into the Beatles. They're all into glitter rock, all yeah. the kids. And, and I remember my English teacher saying, but you know, the Beatles, didn't they split up? It's like three years ago. It was years ago. It's like, <laughs> you know, and people say, oh, he'll grow out of it. Um, so they've been with me all my life. The, the and... Beatles won't last. Unlike that Gary Glitter fellow. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So. So, yeah, they've been with me all my life and so many great memories attached. What do they mean to me? They mean, like I said, going with my mum to see help, um, you know, watching the TV and my dad commenting on them. So the, the, those kinds of childhood memories. And th they've always been uplifting. OK, the Beatles, that's the thing. It's um, it's not 
some would say it's an obsession. I wouldn't say that, you know, um, just love them, just love them. And it doesn't matter who else I listen to. And, you know, these days I listen to them a lot because I've sort of immersed myself back in the Beatles world since I did the podcasts. But before that, I didn't really immerse myself in that. And I wasn't going to fan conventions for about 20 years, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, reconnecting with it. But when I, before that, as I say, so sometimes maybe I wouldn't listen to Beatles for a few weeks and then I'd hear something of theirs and it just comes over you. It's just like, God, they're, you know, they're just the greatest. Mm-hmm. You know, everything about their personalities as well as their music, everything about them is so engaging. So they're uplifting. And even in these dark times that we're going through right now, it's it's great for me to, you know, be posting Beatles stuff. I can see how people connect with it online and, uh, you know, people waiting for the podcast. It's an uplifting thing. Well, that, and, that's and that, one that, thing that's, about yeah. the Beatles. Um, no matter what happens in the world, the, the Beatles music is always out there. It, it's not going to change. It's always going to be there. Like, yeah. No matter what happens in your life, you know, they've, they've still recorded Sgt. Pepper. And and also it's the effect that they have on people. It doesn't matter what, you know, who they are. I mean, they're just guys, okay, good and yeah. bad. But uh, it's the whole package. But the thing with them is it's they're the pleasure that they brought. They're just four guys who slept with each other's wives. That's right, okay. Yeah. And uh, But the, it's the pleasure that they brought. And never was that brought home more strongly to me than one day when I was still living in the UK. And I had to go into the West End of London, you know, centre, central part of London. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember, it was work-related, doing an interview or something. And uh, I had to park the car and I was, I ended up parking in Soho Square, which is where Paul's headquarters yeah. are, MPL. And so I parked there and I'm on my way to wherever I'm going and I see a crowd of people gathered. And then I see the blue Mercedes with the MPL license plate. So it's like, okay. So I thought I'd take a look. And there he is, he's signing some autographs. But what I did was, you know, so blasé, of course, seeing Paul, you know, I started looking around the square and looking around the square, all people in the offices were looking out of, you know, through the windows and all with smiles, everyone with smiles on their faces. And, you know, it was fantastic. It was impressive. It was just, he may be oblivious to that. It doesn't really matter. You know, he's kind of lived with that for decades but just to see the pleasure it was bringing everyone with a smile in a world full of pain okay and bullshit going on all the time it's a great thing to see that it's like seeing a goal being scored in a sports contest you know and the crowd going crazy and in that moment no one's thinking of their worries or all all the other bullshit right they're just happy they're ecstatic (laughs) and it's the same thing with that when people see them it lifts them or hear, hear them it lifts them well, hopefully one day I can be in a similar situation, meeting a beetle and being that elevated. Well, not elevated, mm. but, you know, lifted up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, here, here's where it gets really fun. Are, are you ready? I, I'm always ready for fun. Okay, this is where we get opinionated. I'm, I'm going to hit you with some quick fire questions. Okay. Again, I I have to preface this by saying the questions are quick. The answers are almost always not. Um, what is your favorite Beatles song? Impossible. Come on, really? One song, one song. Okay, if it was, 
Um, that is virtually impossible, but yes. and it will change all the time. Well, but what is I your favorite th- Beatles song right now? Yeah, I, I, the one that I keep coming back to is because, you know, we did a show called John Lennon's White Album, which is a, mm-hmm. just a fantastic album in and of itself. Anyone who hasn't done that, do that. Compile all the John songs, add Revolution, you know, the single mm-hmm. um, to them. And what an album. And so any number on there, because often I'd sort of say, you know, hot contenders are Tomorrow Never Knows, mm-hmm. Happiness is a Warm Gun. But the one I'll pick for this show is Dear Prudence. And the reason is, I just think it's such a beautiful song and it's such a fantastic production. The way that it builds and builds to the point where you get that cacophony of sound, you know, and then it resolves itself as the sun comes out and the sky is blue mm-hmm. at the end. It's just a, a, a complete perfect song. See, I, I think you actually just proved a point that I, I find so fascinating how everyone has such a personal experience with the Beatles music because uh, I went back recently, listened to all previous shows. I always ask the guests what their favorite, you know, blah, blah, blah is. Yeah. And with the Beatles albums, I was able to kind of see some usual suspects. But right. with the Beatles songs, uh, the most I ever saw repeated was maybe like two or three times. Everyone's got a different one. Yes. And like I said, in my case, seriously, it will just change all the time. I mean, you know, we can work it out. Hey, Jude. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Ballad of John and Yoko. Uh, hey, Bulldog. Um, see, you know, you, you can't see it, but you, you brought a smile to my face even just saying, like, we can work it out. Because yeah. to me, that's one of the songs that I associate with, you know, just discovering the Beatles. Because, mm-hmm. you know, after I had found my mom's old CD of the Blue Album, I went yeah. out myself to HMV, back when it still existed here in Canada, uh, uh-huh. and bought myself the Red Album. And I remember yeah. just listening to In the Car to We Can Work It Out. Yes. And I don't know what it was. It, I This is going to sound weird, like borderline... You know, in the Ruddles heads, like, it was the trousers. Uh, no, in that song, it's the harmonium. Yes, That's what's I agree. always yeah. stuck out to me, even as it's sm- an eight It smooths year old. out the whole song, doesn't it? It gives it this kind of smooth sound. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't even put words on it. Mm. And now, the flip side of that question. What is your least favorite Beatles song? Oh, okay. Least favorite, right? Which... None of them are that bad, but yeah, mm-hmm. the ones that I may skip past, um, yeah. Dig a Pony. Okay. Um, you know, that one comes to mind. Songs that I've got no issue with that just aren't particularly my taste. Believe it or not, I saw her standing there. I don't mind it. I'll listen to it and enjoy it. But it's not one of my top songs. Same thing with um, Drive My Car, Good Day Sunshine. Some okay. Paul songs there. Um, well, but in terms I, of, I, I noticed the pattern yeah. here. Uh, mm. A lot of your choices seem to be John, and your lessers are kind of Paul. Yeah, and th- and those are not criticisms, by yeah. the way, of Paul's songs because they're great songs. I've got it's just a a total personal taste thing. That's all it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, what was the one that came to mind though was a John song. You know, Digger well, Pony. Never been crazy on that. I, I, I can't say I, I've been particularly crazy about that, but I, I'll probably mm. elaborate more on that in a minute with a with but again, question. But again, if I hear it, it's still the Beatles and it's still mm-hmm. those dynamics and you're listening to, you know, whether it's George's guitar or John's mm-hmm. vocal or Ringo's drumming, 
you know, it, it still draws us in. <laughs> it's, you know, it may, it may not be, you know, the legend of Xanadu, but it's still the Beatles. That's right. Yeah, well, nothing matches the legend of Xanadu, no. of course. Beatle, the Beatles didn't have any whipping sounds on their No, that, that's one thing I think we can say for certainty. That um, I don't think uh, the Beatles were mentioned in any Dave D. Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch songs, but Dave but, D. Dozy but, Beaky Mick and Titch were mentioned in a Beatles outtake. Yes, by George. Mm-hmm. But that's I think right. that, that kind of proves something here what it proves i don't it goes to show that dave d that dave d dozy beaky mick and titch were the major influence of the 1960s that's what it proves not not even music culturally everything politically culturally ethically exactly the soundtrack to uh you know the the civil rights marches of 68 was zabadak oh yeah yeah that's true yes (laughs) Okay, that I think may take the cake for one of the most ludicrous sentences I've said on this show. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, what is your favorite Beatles album? The White Album. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and again, that's not, you know, I mean, it's like, I'm, am I saying it's miles ahead of everything else? I know I said it quickly like that. It's because it comes to mind. I'm well aware that for quite some time now, it's been my favorite because of the diversity on it. You know, I mentioned John's White Album. Just his White Album alone is a fantastic album. Paul's White Album is fantastic. And then you've got the George and Ringo songs, you know. Although George would be more of an EP. Yeah, but, but, well, you know, but what tracks on there? Oh, what tracks indeed. You know, absolutely fan well, piggies. I, I, I can't Savoy say I'm a big Truffle. fan of Long, 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 but everything else. I love Long, 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 though. I love it. You know, fantastic percussion as well on there. However, but, um, Piggies is one that we can both agree on. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. There's you know? just something and delightfully what, snarky about that song. And, and what about While My Guitar Gently Weeps? You oh, know, what can fantastic. you say about that? Oh, I can say a lot about it, and it's all good. It's all yeah. good. So, so, you know... As an album, we've got a double album there, right? And so, and it's all there. It's like so, it's so diverse. It's so eclectic. So that that's why that's the one for me. Well, I you are not exactly in like a minority here. Because again, I can mm. say this when I went back and did the tally, the White Album came in third with popularity wise. I So the, I, I'm going to guess, are the, are the first two Abbey Road followed by Pepper? No, actually, it's a two-way tie. No, don't, don't do not tell me that number one was Yellow Submarine. Oh fuck no, <laughs> no. But um, Yellow Submarine didn't even top like the least favorite album chart. Um, it's it's a two-way tie between uh, uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver for number one for the others. That's fair enough. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, that's it's ignoring... a running joke on this show that I, I always preface this question by saying, remember, there's a correct answer. And if you don't say the correct answer, I will say it for you. And the correct answer is? Uh, in my opinion, Revolver. I see. Okay. But again, it, no, it all... It's... Again, again, I've got no arguments with that. It's a fantastic album. I mean, what Beatles album... To... I know people say, oh, please, please me, you know. 
still fantastic album. That actually topped the least favorite chart, I think. Eh, It often does, but I I still think fantastic. You know, any album that's got twist and shout and... uh, Any album that's got P.S. I Love You. And There's a Place and Misery and Please Please Me. I mean, come on. So, you know, and then the With the Beatles album. Fantastic album. That okay. That's one that uh, has been kind of trashed on my show, but I, I vehemently defend it. Oh, I've got a real problem with people trashing that album. I think it's fantastic. No. It It's, I wouldn't say it's their strongest, but for a second album, you can do a lot worse. I, I think it's a magnificent album. Oh, I think so I too. I really do. Yeah. It's, so, um, it's probably my favorite early Beatles album. Right. So what's your next f- quickfire well, question? And it's the last... Actually, it's the last quickfire question. What oh, is your so, least so favorite the fun, So the fun phase is almost over. Yeah. Well, okay. it, I'll, I'll try and keep it fun for one more question after this. Okay, go on then. What is your least favorite Beatles album? Yellow Submarine, I guess. Okay. You know, I, I, I like the Beatles tracks on there, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's an EP. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I feel like out of all the things that the Beatles could do now that uh see this is hard because now I'm starting to have friends who work in the business and I, I can't say as many, you know, criticism things about the record company, but I'll right. still say it. As much as they're milking the catalog dry now, uh, hmm. I'm surprised that they haven't done like a record store day yellow submarine mono EP. Yeah, with, that's with that's across one idea. the universe as originally intended. I'm also still waiting for the revolver box set. Oh, you and me both. Yeah. Could you imagine yeah. a five? Well, actually, I don't think that'd even be possible, unless, like, actually, I don't even think so. I was going to say a five point one mix, but I, I think that one was still recorded on four track. So. Right. Yeah, it was. It was. But there, my there God, couldn't can you imagine be that tomo- many. Oh. Yeah. Can you? Tomorrow never knows. Tomorrow in never knows in surround sound. Yeah. I also want, in the box set, I want to hear Paul storming out of the She Said, She Said <laughs> session. Yeah, and hear George kind of begrudgingly play the bass. Yes, exactly. Well, he did a better job of it yeah. than... Well, Paul, than storm- jo- the- Paul storming that- out of She Said, She Said, and then supposedly dying in that car crash. Oh, that's right. He stormed straight out and went straight into a car crash and re-emerged mm-hmm. as Billy Shears. Exactly. According to legend, also a Canadian. Or Scottish, depending on who you talk to. Or William Campbell. Yeah, it, it's a very flimsy rumor with very flimsy evidence that doesn't even match its own continuity. And that's why I haven't even done a show. People keep asking me to do a show on it. I may well do one well, at if, some point. If you, but... if you do one, you have to have me on, because I oh. can ramble on about that fucking thing for hours. But, but, but the point is, really, it's a show about a non-story, if you know what I mean. It's... Yeah. It's just ridiculous. The the fact that when there's no real news, when the Beatles stopped making, you know, headlines in the late 60s for being, you know, everywhere like they were in the early 60s, they'll just start making up stories. Right. Yeah. Right. So if they're not in the tabloids, it's like, well, the reason they're not in the tabloids is uh, because one of them is dead. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. And if you if you play Magical Mystery Tour on a turntable that's upside down and the entire side one in reverse, you'll ruin your needle. Well, absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can only have yourself to blame for that. Yeah. I I wonder, 
I, I keep thinking, I wonder if that was like an orchestrated thing at some point with like Capitol Records PR people. Like, you know what? Sales of Yellow Submarine were down. You know what we could do to sell a bunch of Beatle records? Tell some, you know, acid junkie college kids that one of them is dead. See what they do then. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, see kids, and that's how you sell an album. I can see how you spend a lot of your spare time plotting all this stuff. Yes. That's what Scheming. I, that's what I do. Scheming for things that happened 50 years ago. Yes. Well, and now, right. here's the final question. Why do the Beatles still matter? God, I think this show has just explained all that. <laughs> um, no, I think this show has explained why Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch are the superior cultural force. Well, that's true. Yeah, at least we've announced that to the world. But uh, why do the Beatles still matter? Because their music, number one, of, of course, that will never die. And it is as uplifting, same word I used before, it's as uplifting and inspirational now as it was on the day of release. You know, that's the. it's timeless. It's absolutely timeless. I firmly believe it will be the classical music, you know, of the future. I, I think um, it already is being treated that way because yes. of, you know, people keep saying, oh, the Beatles are going to be forgotten, you know, just like all popular music right. eventually is. No way. No. no way. The way the Beatles have been, like a friend of mine who hosts another Beatle podcast, Joe Wisby, he mm -hmm. has about, you know, let's say 400 Beatle books. The fact that there are 400 Beatle books tells you something. And the fact that, you know, probably half yes. of them have been written in the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's absolutely true. You don't like see, I said, back, you don't back in the early 70s, like I said. That documented. No, no, there's no one like that. You know, yeah. they, they outstrip Elvis. I mean, as I said, you oh, know, when I was fuck. a kid. Uh, Elvis you know, isn't even in the equation. Right. So, you know, when I was a kid, people were saying, you know, oh, you'll grow out of it and. Oh, you know, they split up three years ago. Yeah, you you and... still could grow out of it one day. Right, yeah, exactly. I'll grow yeah. out of it into my coffin, I think. But <laughs> um, but but uh, no, I mean, that that's the thing. We know they got the staying power, you know, and look how they took off on iTunes as soon as they finally, you know, agreed to the licensing of that. I mean, they, they are, they're timeless. And I remember my daughter when she was in high school and I'd be waiting for her in the car sometimes to pick her up and seeing all these kids coming out in Beatles shirts, you know? Um, they're, they're still hip. They're still hip. Well, it doesn't they, matter they the generation. They, they don't need a, a biopic with Rami Malek or Taron Egerton to stay relevant. Uh, yeah, and while some of the messages of their songs may have dated, you know, some of the more misogynistic stuff, you know, yeah. like Run For Your Life and, you can't and Girl do that. or whatever. Right, exactly, but... You know, the main message, as Paul said in the anthology, you know, that he's so glad that their songs, most of them were so positive and they're about love and peace. The, the uh, fact and... that your music can still be so respected and uh, one of your members has a song uh, with the N-word in the title uh, and they haven't been completely culturally erased means right. you're bulletproof. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I think that's why they matter. And, and, you know, it's not just that they matter to people. They're important. They're important in our culture. 
And I don't just say that because, you know, I'm a Beatles fan. I just yeah. think, yeah, the, the message they delivered and what a catalogue of songs. Oh, you know, what, a what variety. You know, just mind-blowing catalogue of songs. Um, it's something for everyone. It, when people sort of say, oh, I don't like the Beatles, it's like, really, there's not one thing they ever did in that massive catalogue? That's See, weird. That's a sentence I never believe. Because there's always something for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, there is something something for everyone. It's absolutely true. And well, as I say, every day is a Beatles day. Well, I actually think that's a perfect note to end, end the fun questions. Because now I get to turn it over to you. What would you like to plug? What would I like to plug? Um, so, the Beatles Naked. Go to thebeatlesnaked.com. Um, and, you know, that's the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And don't, don't just that. Google it because you might see some things on Google images that you might not want to see. Right, that's true. See, Beatles see naked, our previous yes. conversation about two virgins. Exactly, you'll end yeah. up with two. Go virgins, go back yeah. about thirty seconds. Oh no, you'll thirty be minutes. Yeah, you you you'll know that it's not the show if you hear Yoko squawking. Okay, so <laughs> so so, so um, yeah, so the Beatles naked. Um, you can go to my website, richardbuskin.com. There, there actually, you can also link to the Beatles naked um, <laughs> website, but you also can link up to my pages on Facebook and um, see the other stuff that I've done, all the non-Beatles stuff that I've done as well. And uh, so that's a second plug. Um, I think that's enough. Yeah. Well, and in case uh, my audience is too lazy to type anything. Uh, you can find all all his links in the descriptions wherever you're listening, and that segues into my. This is this is always a, a mouthful when I try and give myself my plug at the end of the episodes. You you want to see a a seven or an eighteen year old uh, tucker himself self out in about a minute? Oh, watch, I can't wait. Watch this. All right. So if you're listening to this show on YouTube where uh, a good portion of my audience listens. Uh, in case you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell notification icon so you get notified every time a new episode gets posted. And I also post other things uh, here, other conversations with other people, occasionally about things other than the Beatles. Of course, the only other example I can think of was a two-and-a-half-hour-long episode about XTC, uh, but I digress. And, um, you know, you can follow us on Facebook, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, and this episode, in case you aren't streaming it, can be found basically anywhere good podcasts can be heard, and most bad ones. So you know. Can I find you on Twitter as well? Uh, at the moment, uh, this may change between our conversation uh, right now and when this gets posted. But as of right now, no. But if well, check check Twitter just in case, yeah. because by the time it's posted. Yeah. It- Check, yeah. check check Twitter for fans on the run anyways because I might I might cave in and uh, but yeah you can fans talk. on the run oh that's yeah <laughs> fans on the run there well, you go there's I, a plug I, I have a new intro yes yeah but you can find the show on Spotify iTunes or Apple podcasts as, as it's now called Google podcasts and about a billion other services that my uh, distributor signed me up for that I don't really know about unless I Google the show. It's like, oh, wow, I'm there. I didn't know that. It's always amazing to discover where you are and you didn't even know you were there. Exactly. Well, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Exactly. And I love that song, by the way. Some of George's finest lyrics. And with that, Richard, it's been an absolute uh, 
blast talking with you today. I've I've had a great time. Me too. You've got a lucky face. Oh, it's it's even funnier that you say that because it's just audio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyways, to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Dance on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.